You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. It's cold outside. It is cold, and I'm glad to be inside. Because last night, 3E Restoration had our celebration, our yearly celebration. Oh, yeah, look at y'all. I like it. Look at y'all. Yeah. And it was cold last night. It was nasty cold. I I just now started to feel my toes this morning. But I got to tell you, in about um, the Sunday after Easter, we're going to take Sunday, and I want to make sure that I want to encourage you strongly to be here for Easter Sunday for obvious reasons, um, because that's the highest day of the Christian calendar. It's the day we celebrate resurrection. Um, And that is where all hope ends and all hope begins is in the resurrection of Jesus. And then that next Sunday, we're going to be together as a church family in a very unique way. We're going we're to show a movie during our gathering. We're going to show a film. And the film is entitled Only Us. And it is a film that features Jen in her heart and God and features also this community as a whole. As we came around uh, our neighbors living through social displacement, Jen's story is woven throughout as the key story to spark our imagination as she opens her heart to us to tell us her story. But then you're going to see how God has moved in all of these different organizations. And you might be wondering, especially if you're new here, why would we take time on a Sunday to do that? Because everything we're going to see in that film grew out of this church. Everything. 3E grew out of your faithfulness. Out of the faithfulness of people who are no longer here, who have gone to be with Jesus. Out of the faithfulness of this church and God's generosity and hospitality extended through this congregation, that story went out and has gone out and is writing new stories. And so it's important because this story is about our community. And look, man, as a church, we are not called to live in holy huddles. We're called to be witnesses of the reign of Christ in our city. We're called to be lovers of people in our city. We're called to speak truth to power in our city. We're called to embody the confessions of our faith in our city. So it matters what happens in our city because we're the people of God who live in the city. Does that make sense? Amen. And if you read your Bibles, Isaiah 61, Jeremiah 29, Luke 4, make it go on and on. And how the Bible says that God plants people in a place so they can bear witness to the love of God and presence in that place. And the people of God were scattered in exile in Babylon. In Jeremiah 29. And they're wondering what they're supposed to do, the fact that they don't have a home. Yahweh sends them a letter and says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to build houses. I want you to grow homes. I want you to have children. I want you to get married off. I want you to build a life in Babylon. And here's what the scripture says. Because when your city prospers, you will prosper. Do you see that? The prosperity of the city is connected to our prosperity as the people of God. We are woven together intricately in the fabric of the heart of our city. And churches that do not understand what it means to be a people of God in its city do not understand what it means to be a people of God. And so part of what this film demonstrates and illustrates is what it could look like. Actually what it could look like when the people of God take Jesus seriously. And it's extraordinary, y'all. It's an extraordinary film. And so I can't wait to show you that in about four weeks. It's only 30 minutes. It's shorter than half the sermons I preach. So you'll feel really good about uh, you'll feel really good about that. All right, if you have U version apps, you can go there. So our fi- our faith is filled with paradox. Everybody say paradox. paradox. 
All right, so here's what paradox is. You may be wondering, what do you mean? Paradox is, according to the dictionary, so I just want to be kind of clinical, a seemingly absurd or contradictory statement, which, when investigated, may prove to be founded or true. In other words, it's a word, it's a sentence, it's a phrase that sounds absurd and like a contradiction, <clears throat> but if you sit with it long enough, or if you try it out, it actually ends up being true. That's paradox. Our faith is filled with paradox. Let me give you an example. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Jesus. Blessed are those who hunger. John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus. No one comes to me, no one who comes to me will ever be hungry. Romans chapter 3, verse 28. A person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. James chapter 2, verse 24. A person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Which one is it? Matthew eleven thirty. 30. My yoke is easy. Matthew 7, 14, how difficult the road that leads to life. Matthew 5, 16, Jesus, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. Matthew 6, 1, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Matthew 7, 1, do not judge. John 7, 24, judge according to righteous judgment. Which one is it? Proverbs 26, 5, answer a fool. Proverbs 26, 4, don't answer a fool. That's my favorite one. <laughs> like, I, like, we're going to be caught in the dilemma. Do I answer you right now? Do I not? Because you're a fool. And I'm trying to figure out what to do. What's the Bible say? I'm not sure what the Bible says. Paradox, our faith is filled with it. And paradox creates tension. Everybody say tension. tension. Creates tension. And Jesus himself is a paradox. He's fully God and what? Fully man. And then Jesus teaches in paradoxes, right? These contradictory sounding statements that when tested proved to be true. But on the surface, on the surface in its first hearing, it sounds contradictory. So number one, this is why we can't do shallow readings of the Bible. You with me? We can't do shallow readings of the Bible. Because when we do shallow readings of the Bible, we don't live in the paradox. We may resolve something that God didn't even mean to resolve. Jesus began his ministry by stating a set of paradoxes in the Sermon on the Mount. And we hear it when he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they're the ones that are going to inherit the earth. He didn't say blessed are the powerful, for they'll inherit the earth. That's how the world works. That's not how the kingdom works. And that is a paradox. In Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 39, Jesus says, Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus went on to teach that if we want to be first, we must become last. That if we labor, we'll find rest. That if we give, we will receive. That if we become fully loyal to him, we actually become liberated in him. He said that something as resolute and resolved as truth is actually capable of setting us free. And if we want to live, we must be willing to die, figuratively and literally speaking. The apostles even leaned into these paradoxes in their writings because they wanted to help the church understand, it seems, the gospel of God's kingdom and King Jesus and the tension that that can create. Even the apostles said, we see unseen things. We conquer by submitting. We rest under a yoke. We reign by serving. 
We're made great by becoming small. We're exalted when we are humble. We become wise by being fools for Christ's sake. We are made free by becoming servants to all. That'll preach in and of itself. We gain strength when we are weak. We triumph through defeat. We find victory by welcoming our struggles. That'll preach. We live by dying. Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 8-10, through 10, he said that he and his co-workers were, and here's the text, genuine yet regarded as imposters, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet live on, beaten and yet not killed, Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Poor, yet making many rich. Having nothing, yet possessing all things. Are you disoriented? He even said that when he was weak, what? He was strong. There are many things we could say this morning and any other time we gather across kitchen tables or in a gathered space like this about the paradoxical nature of our faith. But one thing I want to say today is that the paradoxical nature of our faith demonstrates how the wisdom of God can run contrary with the wisdom of the world. Sometimes God's wisdom resolves conflicts and contradiction, and other times God's wisdom leaves us with tensions that we have to just manage. In a society divided by fast food, live streaming, same-day shipping, clear-cut categories of belonging and distinction for humanity, ideological understandings that generally leave you with two or maybe three choices, all of this makes it difficult to embrace and hold complex truths and tensions. We have a hard time holding them. It's hard to take the time to meditate before giving a hot take. Wrestling with scripture rather than looking for easy answers and engage within biblical community that might challenge me rather than go to those who will simply affirm me. But this tension is where wisdom is found. And this tension is where the wisdom of God is revealed. In Christ, God comes to the world speaking truth, but he speaks truth relationally. Everybody say relationally. Here's why that matters. To speak truth abstractly in propositional statements of kind of fact doesn't create any tension. But when you start speaking truth relationally, now that creates tension because the core tenet of our faith is love. And love always creates tension. Love doesn't judge, but yet it's quick to judge. Why? Because when you love somebody, you're not going to let them live a life that's going to hurt themselves. So you're going to speak truth. But yet you're going to not judge in the way the world might judge. Does that make sense? When Jesus speaks truth, he speaks it relationally. Because he speaks in terms of truth, in terms of our relationship with God. That's a relational truth. That's why Christianity isn't facts to be believed, but convictions to be lived. When Jesus speaks truth, he speaks truth that are neighbor-to-neighbor relationship truths. All of this creates tension. So we may have a clear understanding of the truth of morality, but when it's put in flesh and it's lived by someone in bodily form and we look at that, we can't come so hard at that because we remember our primary ethic of love and that creates tension. Does that make sense? And it would be so much easier if the church would understand this because when our society debates the poor, and I'm doing this because I don't call the poor the poor, people living through poverty. When society debates 
these social or so-called, I'm going to say so-called, so-called moral issues. Society has binaries in mind, this or that, right or left, right or wrong. And though there may be a right or wrong, and I believe in a right or wrong, the humanity of the person in front of you creates the tension. At least it should. And then you go, what do I do with that? And that's the tension. What do I do with that? That question pushes us to the Lord. That's the question we take to Christ. That's where we settle down in our spirits. We don't give hot takes. We rest in the moment with the person in front of us. And we seek the wisdom of God because the wisdom of Fred might lend itself to too clear-cut an answer that destroys the human in front of me because all I see are no tensions or tensions that I want to resolve rather than hold. And so when the church builds itself this kind of moral doctrine and tries to create these categories of belonging based upon how people behave, the church is demonstrating an unwillingness to live in and hold the tensions. Because we don't get to choose who sits at that table, beloved. But how we love that person from the door to the table defines how we receive this table. Does that make sense? And that's key. Because sometimes the wisdom of God contradicts the wisdom of the world. We have a God who came to us in self-emptying, self-giving love. That is the opposite of the gods of history, of all the mythologies and legends of gods. And Paul knew that that in and of itself was paradoxical and absurd. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's a lengthy reading. It says 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. It's in your version. Are your Bibles. Bibles are those things that had come in covers and pages. I know, like, we don't ever, like, we don't bring Bibles in. We're like, I got my Bible. Oh, look at Stephanie. Stephanie's like, got my Bible. All right. Some of y'all are like, oh, let me get off Facebook and get a new version. Jason. All right, so, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are being destroyed. But it is the power of God for those who are being saved. It is written in Scripture, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I'll reject the intelligence of the intelligent. Where are the wise? Where are the legal experts? Where are today's debaters? Hasn't God made the wisdom of the world foolish? In God's wisdom, He determined that the world wouldn't come to know Him through its wisdom, through its wisdom, Instead, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of preaching. Jews ask for signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, which is a scandal to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. Christ is God's wisdom. I've said this a million times. I'll say it a million more times. If you want to know what God's wisdom looks like, you don't just turn to any page in the Bible. You look directly to Jesus. You open up Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you read, and you sit with, and you watch, and you listen to Jesus. And through that lens, you interpret every other verse in the Bible. Because Jesus is the manifold climax 
the wisdom of God. And every other verse written by every other human inspired by the Spirit has to be filtered through what we see in Jesus. So he goes on to say in verse 25, This is because the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And maybe, see, maybe there's a reason for this. Because if we just interpret the Bible, and we're using just our faculties and your faculties, and we're coming together and we're trying to interpret something in the Bible, and we have no frame of reference, then we're going to come up with all kinds of wonky interpretations. Does that make sense? Like, we're going to start thinking we could be pro-life, but support violence. That's where this goes. But if we look at Jesus, if that becomes the foundational frame, the frame, the lens to which we interpret every other scripture, now we've got to deal with the Jesus who said, love your enemies. Uh, or we've got to deal with this Romans text that says, don't take vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, what? If your enemy is thirsty, what? See, now that's problematic. That creates tension. That's why we've got to look at Jesus. I had somebody say to me, and I know it's true in some ways, <clears throat> and I hurt, I hurt for y'all in this way. I had somebody say, Fred, sometimes I feel like you preach the same sermon over and over again. <laughs> uh, I'm like, man, that ain't even, like, you, like I buy my sermons from two different places. <laughs> I'm just kidding, I write my sermons. I'm like, you know why it probably sounds like I preach the same thing? Because I always come, like I always, always feel like if I'm going to stand up before you for 30 minutes, 20 minutes, or 40 minutes, whatever it is, that I, like we have this moment, I have to give you Jesus. Like I have to give you Jesus somehow. And then I got to get you the Jesus who calls you to love like Jesus. So I got to give you Jesus who tells you to trust in Jesus. Then I got to give you Jesus that tells you to love like Jesus. Because here's the thing, if we were so good at it, if we didn't need the same thing over and over again, then why do we have such a hard time being compassionate? Like, why would a preacher ever have to stand up and remind Christians to love the poor? Like, why would a church ever, why would a pastor ever have to stand up and remind Christians, love your neighbors, love yourselves, or look at marriages and say to the husband, I stop being a jerk, or whatever the case may be. Like, why would it, that, why would pastors have to do this if it really came that simple? So, yeah, so every message I preach, I'm trying to do the best I can to give you something different, not to please you, but because I'm trying to deal with the text. But at the end of the day, I am going to give you Jesus. The best I know how. And then we're going to come to this table. We're going to receive the reality of that. And then we're going to sing songs. I'm going to mess up where the capo is and all those kind of things that I do when I'm playing. And then we're just going to, we're going to worship. We're going to be together because we are formed every day and every hour by the liturgies of the world. And for those of us who watch network news, you're formed more by Don Lemon and Tucker Carlson than you are by Jesus sometimes. And you know why I know that? Because you sit with them for an hour a night, every single night, and you come to the Word of God for an hour and a half in a day. And so, yeah, when I stand here, I'm going to do the best I can to give you Jesus. In the hopes that somehow you and I walk out of here with Jesus, sit down with Jesus, and when we click that show on and Jesus says, why are you watching that? We'll turn it off. That's what we have to, so, so that's how this has to land. This is how this has to work. Why? Because I love you too. Because we have a rule of life that says love one another for what? 
And so if we're going to love one another for God's sake, what greater gift can we give each other than Jesus? Back to my notes. So, so Paul reminds us in verse 26, or in verse 27, that God chose what the world considers foolish to shame the wise. God chose what the world considers weak to shame the strong. And God chose what the world considers low class and low life, what is considered to be nothing. To reduce what is considered to be something to nothing. So no human being can brag in God's presence. It is because of God, Paul says, that you are in Christ Jesus. And he became wisdom from God for us. Everybody say God for us. God for us. Sometimes we got to remember that. Because I think sometimes it's easy to forget. And part of what makes it easy to forget is that we live in this world where tensions are too easily resolved. And we are called to hold these tensions. And these tensions unsettle us, and they make us ache sometimes. They disturb us. They disorient us. When I'm sitting there watching that show as if Jesus were with me, that creates tension. When I want to say what I want to say to my neighbor, even though it'll make me feel better, but Jesus would say something else, that creates tension. The reality of tension is that it is good for us. Even though it is unpredictable and it is immeasurable and it is at times unresolvable, the tension stretches us and it's the tension that makes us mature in our faith. Because we aren't going to be measured in how we love people by how we answer Bible questions in Bible bowl type formats. Love is our witness. And how can people know love from a God they can't see if they can't see love from a God that people can't see people love them that they can see? If they can't see that, how are they going to know? How are they going to know? People who say we love God and God loves them don't love them, then how are they going to know? But in, even still, how are you going to know? How are you going to know when you live every day of your life and sometimes through the days people tell you you're not good enough, you're not lovable enough, that you can't be forgiven, that you are the sum total of your failures, that you are the sum total of your weaknesses, that you do not have the education or you do not have the skill sets or you do not have the traits or you're unemployable or you're too old or you're too young or you look too different. Then you come to the table of grace and God says, I take that and that, how you are, how I've embodied you and how I've made you, that is a reflection of my wisdom. Oh. Let's pray for that sweet boy. God be with Christian whose feelings are hurt. May he know your love and peace. I heard this morning how he calmed the spirit of another child down. Father, would you calm him down too? In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You, beloved, you, you are the expression of the manifold wisdom of God. You ever thought about yourself that way? When you show people the love and reign of Christ, you become a signpost of God's wisdom in the world. Amen. And your embodied witness 
bears witness to the Christ who is the supreme wisdom of God in the world. And so I want to do something I don't always do. Or maybe I do always do it. Because <laughs> I want to give the upside of tension. Number one, tensions are meant to keep us alert to God's wisdom. If we resolve every tension and we close out every tension, we're liable to lean into our own wisdom. But if we're willing to hold the tensions we feel in our gut, feel in our bodies, feel in our brains, feel in our hearts about the world and how to live faithfully in the world and follow Jesus faithfully in the world, that tension keeps us alert to the wisdom of God. Number two, tensions are meant to keep us reaching for God's wisdom. We learn how God would have us respond to what unsettles us, where we are pushed to pray, to search the scriptures, and to seek counsel from others. We need all three. You with me? We need to be pushed to prayer. We need to be pushed to scripture. And we need to be seeking Christian, godly, biblical counsel. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up. But pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one person alone keep warm? And if someone overpowers one person, two can resist them. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. We are meant to live in community, beloved. We're meant to flesh these out in community. Proverbs 12, 15, a fool's way is right in his own eyes, but whoever listens to counsel is wise. Beloved, a lot of times I hear from Christians say, well, I've been praying about it in this decision I'm going to make. And then I say, have you sought counsel from anyone within your faith community on it? Anytime the answer is no, I want to pause. I want to invite you to pause. Now, here's the thing. Here's why I think it matters that you seek community in this church. Because we have a rule of life. Let's say it. Love one another for God's sake. Guard one another's backs, protect one another's personal values, believe one another's motives, sing one another's praises. We have a commitment to each other. I'm not saying other Christians outside of the fellowship don't. I'm, I'm good. Like, please, seek the bro- brothers and sisters of Christ. But specifically here, we have a common life that we've embraced. So we should have a mandate within this faith community to love each other enough to tell each other the truth. Amen. Right? Yep. To have to work this out. Proverbs 15, 21-22, plans fail when there is no counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. Proverbs 19, 20, listen to counsel and receive instruction so that you may be wise later in life. Beloved, we need to seek counsel. We need to be pushed to prayer. We need to be pushed to scripture. That's how we hold the tension. And we do that in community because number three, the upside of tension is that it keeps us pursuing God's wisdom together rather than alone. And here's the major point of what I'm trying to say, and I'm about to close it up. Is that the beauty of being a community of difference, D-I-F-F-E-R-E-N-T-S, a community filled with differences and diversity and experiences and ideologies and points of view, the beauty of that is when we seek counsel from within this body, as we are wrestling with the purposes of God, we're going to be pushed into tensions naturally. Because I don't live in your body and I don't experience things the way you do. I don't have your story. When I make room for your story to be heard and you make room for my story to be heard and Latanya's story to be heard and Robin's story to be heard and we come into this and we're trying to flesh this out together, we're having to listen from people's different perspectives. We're having to take in different points of view. And that in and of itself can create tension. 
We can't be an affinity group that thinks the same way, votes the same way, acts the same way, because that's not, that's not going to be the expression of the manifold wisdom of God. That's just going to be a social club that keeps us comfortable. But if we are the people that makes room for the differences among us, and we learn then to submit those differences at the table, it is possible that the wisdom of God will shine from our lives like a light in a dark world. And that is why we need each other, and that is why we need the differences that are among us. And out of those differences, when unity flows out of those differences, then the society we live in has no choice but to wonder how. And then that becomes our witness. You with me? That becomes the witness. If we can't do that well, then we have a little witness. We have just little, little witness in the society. But if we do that well, beloved, we will have a witness and we'll be able to trust God with the consequences. Amen. We need each other. We need to live in the tensions because that is how we discover the manifold wisdom of God from among us through the Christ who is within us, working through us. And we know this is true when we come to this table. We come to this table every week and we remember that though we are marked by the differences. We're marked on our bodies with our skin and the texture of our hair and our body shapes and sizes. We're marked on our birth certificates. We're marked in some ways in our bank accounts. As we are marked by these differences, we remember that these differences find their resolution. These differences find their resolve in our common identity at the table. In the world, you may be a lot of things. You may fit a lot of categorical descriptions in the world. But at this table, you're a child of God. In the world, you may fit a lot of categorical descriptions. But at this table, you're my brother and sister. We remember our common identity at this table. And that gives us the courage to reorganize all the identities that come with our bodies in our society. We can embrace then those secondary identities fully because we've embraced our primary. We don't get to do away with the secondary because we address and embrace our primary because the world doesn't work that way. And God didn't make us that way. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast.